I invite you to remain standing. If you would please grab your Bibles as we continue our sermon series through the book of Esther and our scripture reading for tonight will be found in Esther chapter 7 to pick up where we left off from last week. Esther chapter 7. And these are the words of the most holy God, inspired, infallible, and perfect. So the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking, and he went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose words saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, fifty cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. And so ends the reading of God's word thus far. May he bless us. Let us pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, you are indeed seated on the throne, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, that your name is the name above every name. And even as we see in this story that you providentially are working all things according to your perfect will, your perfect purpose, summing up all things in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we pray that you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us eyes to see, that we would be rooted in Christ, built up in Christ, even established in our faith, that we might be pleasing unto you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, and amen. We may be seated. Well, it was uh, almost exactly 75 years ago, uh, in fact, off by just one day, that on October 16th, 1946, 
history unfolded what is no doubt one of its great reversals. And if you know your history, surely you locate that that date is towards the end of the Second Great World War. And specifically, the reversal I'm referring to is the toppling of the Nazi Empire at the Nuremberg executions. For it was on that day, yesterday, 75 years ago, that 10 prominent members of the Nazi party were sentenced to death by way of hanging. And even if you're the most incurious student of history, you can see why that is such an awesome reversal. For the very men who hanged others were themselves hanged. The very men who wielded death as their instrument had that instrument turned back upon them. And of course, it is that very kind of poetic justice, that rich irony of reversal that we have in our text tonight. For Haman, as the seed of the serpent, in his satanic bloodlust, longs to wage this all-out campaign of death against God's bride that is the church. And he's set on nothing less than total annihilation. And what we see as the text unfolds that God's promise prevails, that no weapon formed against the church shall prosper, and that the gates of Hades shall not overcome, as God's people are delivered through what is a most amazing of reversals. And so we'll walk through the text tonight looking at two simple portions, looking firstly at a wish granted, followed by a wrath abated, but all of it coming to a head in the main meditation which is that the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. So firstly, a wish granted, verses 1 through 6. And just to reset where we left off last week, you might remember Haman is commanded to honor Mordecai, which surely he did so, gritting his teeth, fuming with fury the entire time, even as he received that ominous prophecy from his wife that you will not overcome these people. Now we pick up in verse 1. And you see a feast, and you have Haman and the king and Esther on the second day. Verse 2 says, after much wine drinking, perhaps intimating that the king is not in his most sober mindset, perhaps overindulgent, and he offers Esther a wish, essentially a blank check up to even the half of his kingdom, very much like the offer that we saw in chapter 5. Verse 3, Esther shows her characteristic humility, wisely appealing to the king's favor, saying, if I have found favor in your sight, which of course she has the king's favor. And then she asks for not simply her life, but for the well-being of her people in verse 4. And she explains why. Because we have been sold I and my people to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. And you really must appreciate what a shrewd, bold move this is already on Esther's part. Because she is implying that that which is favored by the king has been pawned off. As if to imply, not only is this just an attack on me, Esther, but is this not also an attack on you, O king? And your kingdom and that which you favor. And then this is layered on with even more cleverness as verse 4 continues. Esther then starts to appeal to the king's self-interest. Saying, 
Well, if we had been sold merely as slaves, I would have kept silent, for that would not be compared to the loss of the king. In other words, Esther's saying, look, if we were sold merely as slaves, at least you, King Ahasuerus, you could have benefited from a really cheap workforce out of the deal, right? At least you could have got some free labor out of the transaction. But what good are dead slaves after all? They don't make for great employees. And so I'm speaking up because you, King, are on the losing end of this transaction. And Esther's shrewdness works. The king takes the bait, and his wrath is ignited, fulminated in verse 5. You see him spin into this fury. Who is this man? Where is he? Who dared to do this? Of course, probably pretty tempting for Esther to, to pull a Nathan and say, well, you did. You, you bonehead. You know, you're the one who signed the edict. You're the one who signed off on this in the first place, and that's why we're in this mess. But of course, she can't say that. And that is very true in a very real sense, because at this moment, she's very much playing with fire. There's an anecdote from the historian Herodotus. He tells us of a man who was on pretty friendly terms with King Ahasuerus. He asked him what we would think of as a pretty insignificant favor. It gave a slight offense to the king. And so what did the king do in response? He had that man dismembered and then set his body parts in two aisles and made the army march in between the body parts of this man to set an example. This is what happens when you cross King Ahasuerus. That is the kind of tyrant Esther is interfacing with. And so, now that, ha- now that Esther has him boiling over, she attempts to direct his fury onto the enemy and pronounces verse 6 with no moral neutrality whatsoever, a foe and an enemy, the evil, capital E, evil, Haman, is who did this. And again, you really must appreciate just how risky that is once she utters those words. There is no turning back at this point. She has crossed the Rubicon, so to speak, And what's more is she has brought herself under the king's decree of death. It will either end well for her or it'll end tragically for her. And there is no middle ground. And that I do think we need to behold what a model of bold faith, of humility, is Esther. See, Esther could have so easily gone into a kind of self-preservation mode. right? She already has the favor of the king. We know this. She could have simply said, just just spare me, your beloved wife, your precious wife, or just spare Mordecai and I, or of course, safest of all, is just keep silent, say nothing. As Edmund Burke famously once said, that all that it takes for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. How easy would have that been for Esther, in this case, a good woman, to just shrink back and do nothing. Indeed, I wonder if that is the case for us, of how often it is that we are silent for fear of man, for fear of persecution, that we compute that the odds are just, they're just too stacked against us. And so the only rational thing to do is to play it safe, preserve our privileges, and do nothing. But she doesn't. See, Esther chooses the route of righteousness, and she intercedes for all her people, 
that she stored up in her heart that perhaps, perhaps I really am appointed to the kingdom for such a time as this. And she links her life to the life of her people. If they live, she lives. If they die, she dies. She is no mere trophy wife resting on her fortunes. No, no, she is aligned with God's covenant people. That is the nature of covenant love, isn't it? When our hearts are knit together. You see the same thing with the Apostle Paul who counted all the privileges that he had of noble birth, of privileged status, all of that as loss, as rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ and knowing the people of God. That is covenantal love. And so with that boldness, verse 6 foretells the outcome. And you see at the end of verse 6, Haman the terrorist now becomes the terrified. And for the first time, it dawns on him that Esther is a Jew, as he has been opposing the God of the Jews, and he is terrified. Just like the demons, when they are confronted by Christ, they are terrified because they know their fate has been sealed, and the doom of judgment is upon them, and Haman knows so too is his fate. So there's a brief word on this wish granted. Let us now turn to this wrath that is abated. So verse 7, you see the king storms out and he goes for a walk. And I think it's highly unlikely that the thought of genocide is what's weighing heavily on his conscience. I don't think that would trouble him much at all. What's far more likely is it's going through his mind the tough spot he's in politically. Because now he has to either rescind the edict go back on his word, the word that he gave, or he's got to follow through with this massacre, executing not only the Jews, but executing his very own wife. But, in verses 7 through 8, it seems that Haman has provided him just the opportunity he's looking for. And yet another case of great irony. Haman is begging for his life from the very person whose life he sought to take. And he bows down before Esther, a Jew, the very thing that infuriated him when Mordecai the Jew refused to bow down to him. Every knee shall bow. And the king walks in at just the right time. And he sees this opportunistic moment. In verse 8, you see what he says. He says, in public, Oh, Haman dares to assault the queen in my house, in my presence? Now, it's certainly possible from the king's angle, maybe it looks like sexual assault, but I think what's far more likely, and commentators are apt to say this, that the king just sees an opportunity that will play well in the media. When the masses hear, oh, did you hear about King Ahasuerus executing a sexual offender in honor of his wife? And thus he follows through with that plan. And so Esther has done the impossible the king's wrath boiling, it had to go somewhere. It had to fall on someone, either the Jews or on Haman. And you notice verse 10, that very last line, that at the death of Haman, the wrath of the king has abated. And of course, this is but the petty wrath of a petty king, driven by drunken self-interest and political motivations, and God's people indeed are spared, saved by the life of an unrighteous man who satisfies the wrath 
of an unholy king. An equation that works on earth, but will never work with the most holy God. And so it does prompt the question, what is it that turns away the wrath of the heavenly king? A wrath that arises not out of pettiness, but out of God's own perfection. His holy opposition to evil, to your sin, to my sin. What could turn away that wrath? And in that we see the glory of the gospel. That the holy Messiah appeases the wrath of the most holy God. Then instead of bringing accusations, he takes upon himself our condemnations. That the one who, like Esther, had the favor of the king, but even had the favor of the heavenly king, that he is the very one who absorbs the wrath of God. And the result is that God's people are truly forever at peace with their great God. Well, as we begin to close, let us lay up in our hearts but three lengthier, if you will, meditations from this amazing section of Esther. Firstly, envy not the wicked. Do not be envious of the wicked. One of the things Christians are repeatedly exhorted to do is to not be envious of wrongdoers. Don't envy the wrongdoer, which at first that might seem a little strange, a little odd. Why, why would I envy uh, the wicked? But of course, as you, think as, the kind of, as, as you think and reflect on the kind of power, kind of opportunity, kind of privileges, kind of leverages that often accrue to the wicked, for instance, a Haman, you can begin to see how that temptation has some bait to it. That Esther might have even found herself saying, oh, if I could just, just once, if I could just run a play out of Haman's playbook just one time. But Scripture says, don't. Do not envy the wicked. They will soon fade away. Do not envy the wrongdoer. They will be cut off. Do not envy the wicked, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. And so verse 9 You'll notice that Haman's execution is proposed, probably performed by a eunuch, as if perhaps to capitalize just how impotent Haman's power really is. That the man who knew what levers to pull, he knew which buttons to press, the man of incredible selfish ambition who seemed to have the jaws of death clamped around God's people, and yet in one moment, the man who lived to be first has become last, and he vanishes like smoke. What a reminder. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for you will look at the place where they were, and they will be gone. Secondly, not only the vice of envy, but you see the virtue of shrewdness. The virtue of shrewdness. And shrewdness is no doubt a neglected virtue, uh, perhaps maybe not even considered a virtue by some, but surely you see in this holy war, Esther displays remarkable shrewdness. And you see it in full bloom in Esther chapter 7. She's got this unenviable task. How do I incite the king against his closest advisor, Haman, without bringing wrath down upon herself and upon God's people? And she does so with this great combination of boldness and subtlety, 
of wisdom and wit, all while maintaining a holy purity. And the Christian life often calls for such shrewdness, which you could think of as a kind of razor-sharp discernment, discernment in motion, right? Discernment with chess moves. And so ask yourself, are you a shrewd Christian? Recall the Lord Jesus commands his disciples, be wise as serpents. Once again, in the imperative mood, be wise as serpents. Now, Haman had plenty of that, didn't he? He was crafty like a serpent. He was cunning like a serpent. But he didn't fulfill the second part of what Jesus says, did he? Be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And unfortunately, we all too often choose one of those. Perhaps wise as serpents, and yet wholly lacking in righteousness and purity. Or we're often innocent and yet full of naivete, full of gullibility. But we are commanded to have both. As the book of Hebrews says, by constant practice, constant practice, having your powers of discernment trained to recognize and sift through good and evil. Is that you? The great Puritan Thomas Watson said it well when he said, the shrewd man retains his ingenuity, but he does not part with his integrity. And no one exemplified that better or more than the Lord Jesus Christ. Just think of how many traps Jesus bested by his wisdom. Tell me, the baptism of John, uh, is that of God or is that of man? Uh, he who is without sin, by all means, please cast the first stone. How is David's son also David's Lord? Tell me, O oh wise Pharisees, whose likeness, whose inscription is on this coin? And on and on it goes, and so too for Esther. She was as peaceful as a dove, and yet she strikes with serpentine speed at just the right moment, with this spirit-wrought shrewdness, which, please do not misunderstand me, is not to be confused with trusting in one's own wits to save you. As Proverbs makes so clear, we plan, plan even shrewdly, but the Lord is the one who establishes our steps. Unless the Lord builds the house, we labor in vain. And so let us be skilled at shrewdness. Hopefully you do not need me to tell you that in this current moment, perhaps now more than ever, is a time for Christians to sharpen their shrewdness. And lastly, thirdly, unless I dare make it seem like the victory of man hangs upon the wit of man, the final meditation, the ironic victory of the cross, the great reversal of the cross. As you look back at verse 10, hopefully you caught the rich irony that the very gallows, that Haman, the offspring of Satan, the seed of the serpent, prepared for the destruction of God's people. Those are the very gallows that seal his destruction. His own instrument is turned back upon him. And the wisdom of Haman is made foolish. And no doubt we see a foreshadowing of an even greater irony, of the greatest reversal in all of history. 
of the gallows that were predestined at Calvary and the cross of Jesus Christ. We know that Satan's weapon that he wields is that of death, that he comes to kill, to steal, to annihilate, self-deceived that his kingdom will win, it will be victorious. And like a giant Haman, he aims to bring forward accusations against you, against the bride, that you would be condemned, working through the principalities and the powers. And yet what do we find when we look at those gallows upon Calvary? That it is the death of death and the death of Christ. That the instrument of death becomes the very instrument of life for God's people. And just like Haman, what the powers of darkness thought was their greatest hour, is actually the dawning of eternal light. For it is through the cross and the resurrection of Christ that death loses all its sting, loses its victory. That as Colossians says, it is through the cross that God has disarmed the principalities and powers and put them to open shame, triumphing over them. And what is no doubt the greatest reversal in all of history. And Christian, I do pray that gives you the greatest of hopes. That no doubt you feel this kind of war. You encounter this kind of war. When your conscience convicts you, when persecutions may assail you, when oppression strikes against the church, when you're mocked or despised for your faith. And so what is God's promise to you? But that no Haman, no weapon formed against the church will ultimately prosper, struck down but not destroyed. That as the psalmist says, that as the nations rage, as the Hamans plot against the Lord, against his Messiah, what is God's response? God sits in the heavens and he laughs. He laughs because he has set his Messiah upon Zion and he will never be moved and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Let us pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we do know that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the very power of God. And that as your word says, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. That you destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning you thwart. And so we pray, Father, that you would humble us, that you would give us an increase of faith, that we might know him, that we might increase in what it is to walk in a newness of life. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, and amen. I want to stand as we continue on in worship.